listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, go to my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W dot com. Click on the contact link and submit your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. Leave your voicemail there and I'll use that as part of the show. And now, the Fret Files Podcast. Indeed. What? Whatever. No, everything's fine around here. Everything's great. What are you talking about? The Fret Files podcast is your fortnightly foray into guitar geekery. My name is Eric Daw, your personal guitar scientist luthier guy with 25 years of experience building and repairing guitars. Sitting beside me is this week's guest host, co-host, guest co-host, the lovely Nat. Hey, thank you. I'm glad you left that in. Well, he's lovely. Greetings. I will read the listener-submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them as the best he can, drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. What have you been working on lately, Eric? Oh, well, I'll tell you uh, someday. Not <laughs> not anytime soon. Someday I'll tell you what's been going on. I know here. some of the things you've been working on. They've been <clears throat> pretty interesting stuff. Oh, I've been working on uh, just... I've got four custom guitars that are almost ready to assemble. They're, they're, the paint has been curing. You want to tell us what color? Uh, there's two Lake Placid Blue and one Butterscotch and one Blonde. Oh, man. Yeah, two of them are go- going to uh, Emerald City Guitars, my one and only dealer. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then the other two will be up for grabs. I don't know. I'll have them done within a few weeks. Things have just been insane around here, uh, just, you know, personally. That's in the, how it goes. My personal life. So... Uh, but I'm getting things done. I'm getting repairs knocked out and sent out. And if you have something that's here with me now, rest assured that I am making haste and getting them all done and getting them done properly. a boy. Yeah, I am. It's true. I know. You're doing a great job. What have you been working on? What does Nat do? That's what people want to know. People want to know, what does Nat do? He's some kind of like secret government employee, so I don't think we can even really talk about it, uh, can we? No, we can a little bit. Uh, my coworker showed me a clip from Ghostbusters where they talk about uh, the short time one of them had to work in the private sector. <laughs> and it was the scariest part of Ghostbusters, and we shared a great laugh. And I do not work in the private sector, no. luckily. No, he's on the he's on the government teat, as they say. <laughs> I am. It's the greatest. He's got one of these cush jobs where I'm not even sure if he goes anywhere. I think he just sits at home and collects a check, and then maybe if there's like an emergency siren, like the bat signal, he no, rushes, he I rushes out with no. like a no rushes out with like a radon detector or something. Well, I, I don't know what's I'm, going on. I'm ineffective. I so. don't even know what you do. I do. I just I'm just being coy. Uh, we uh, have here's what we're gonna do. This is a special show, let me tell you. 
every episode special, but this one. <laughs> this is special. This one's really very special, and it's mostly because nobody's participating in the show anymore. So we have very few questions, but that's okay. We're going to read those, and uh, we're going to do a little bit of guitar history, and then Nat is going to interview someone for the second half, and it's going to be great. So stick yep. around for that. I'm excited to see who that is. I know. Can you... Do you, any guesses? Audience? Not Nat. Nat yeah. knows. Not you. <laughs> I, was, I was still having a hard time. I was kind of running through a few options. Yeah. How would you no. like to hear a guitar question? Uh, that would be cool. But first, first things first, you know, we have this new segment. I don't know if you listen to the show. Oh, of course I do. Nobody really listens. But uh, this is uh, our new segment called the Guitar History Corner. The Guitar History Corner. Oh, yeah. Sounds promising. Well, it's pretty good. Uh, you know, a lot of people are familiar with the Gibson Les Paul. Mm-hmm. But how familiar are they with the man? Lester. And, and his music. You know, a lot of people, I don't think, maybe maybe I'm just uh, sitting on my high horse, but I don't think a lot of guitar people even know that there was a guy named Les Paul. I no, think, not uh, anymore. And, no. I mean, he's it's so antiquated, right? Yeah. But it, that's that's the original signature model electric guitar. Oh, and he could shred. I mean, there's a oh, reason yeah. why. Oh, absolutely. And, and he was a genius inventor. Oh, he was, yeah. He pioneered multi-track recording. Mm-hmm. But um, Fender came along with their electric solid bodies, right? Mm-hmm. And not to be outdone, Gibson, who was a more traditional company, you know, they, they kind of got in the game a little bit later. I think it took them a year to catch up because they were just making big hollow body arch top guitars with pickups on them, like an L5 or something. Jazz right? boxes. Yeah. And Fender released their canoe paddle Telecaster mm-hmm. and everybody Both at Gibson laughed and then they sold like hotcakes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so Gibson thought, well, pff, this upstart company, we got to come up with our own, you know, in the Gibson tradition. Fancy one. And it and and so that's why it looks like a tiny arch top, the Les Paul. Mm-hmm. It looks like a tiny arch top, right? Yeah. With a single cutaway and a couple pickups on there. Uh, but that's why they enlisted Les Paul, because Les Paul was the Jimi Hendrix of 1952. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he was shredding. And uh, here to demonstrate is Les Paul. And Mary Ford. That's right. Oh, bless her heart. I love Mary Ford and Les Paul. So Les is like, he's just shredding, and I think we're allowed to use 15-second clips if it's a yeah, that fair was, use. That right? was educational. That's right. And and Les Paul would, um, be, before Gibson signed him, he cut an Epiphone guitar all up mm-hmm. and gave it a solid center. Out of like a railroad tie like or something, yeah, or something. and it and he called it the log. Oh yeah, and he was even on the Ed Sullivan show with that thing. Oh really? In 1951, yeah. And the first Gibson ads with Les Paul in them before the Les Paul was a thing show him playing that guitar, but the headstock is yeah obscured <laughs> is obscured just out of frame so that you don't see the word Epiphone on the yeah. It's got this dark solid body log. 
stripe through the middle and yeah. then wings made out of this yeah. epiphone and i think this is before gibson bought epiphone but or right around the same mm-hmm. time but oh sure anyhow so uh at at les paul's request they you know they signed him to endorse their new solid body model and at les paul's request they were painted gold so that's why you have the gold top les paul of the early 50s and uh they were huge stars les paul and mary ford mm-hmm with hits like we we just heard how high the moon it's a great song it was I, a smash i know i really like his music and I, I he's it's such a distinctive sound you know oh yeah uh, with the multi-layered voices and the multi-layered guitars it was bright and fast and shredding and yeah. mary ford i think this is true if not it's the internet so i can make stuff up i think she tracked her multi-tracked vocals without hearing the previous take she sang no. each line just based off of the music and the harmony. Wow. And perfectly, like like these slurs and things that she did. I That's think hard to believe, but it's possible. That playback. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, Gibson was a little bit reluctant to jump into this solid electric solid body bandwagon, but they did. So they they enlisted Les Paul, and uh, he who was, you know, like I said, the guitar wizard of his day. Mm-hmm. And uh, Gibson... Uh, uh, President Ted McCarty and his associates developed the solid body model that manifested everything the brand stood for. I'm reading this, of course. Oh, yeah. Including a carved maple top that Fender could not duplicate. Mm-mm, no way. It was a little fancier. I mean, it's definitely like uh, taking the traditions of guitar into a solid body. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the the previous centuries of guitar... <laughs> Yeah, the the arch and later kind of a violin burst, yeah, like right. a hand rub lacquer mm-hmm. burst, and uh, the set neck and the yeah, it's uh, all there. Yep, it's very cool. It's very cool. And then uh, they, so they signed Les Paul in the in I think 1952, and that partnership continued on into the 60s when Les Paul's uh, fame waned. Yeah, as as will happen, but um. I don't know. I just wanted to talk a little bit about Les Paul because he's cool. Oh, yeah. He's great. And uh, really important in the development of the electric guitar. Absolutely. Uh, Paul Bigsby, Les Paul, mm-hmm. and Leo Fender are are, yeah. the, are really the pioneers of yes. it. You know? uh, in fact, there's a great book. It's a great, it's a great book. It's called The Birth of Loud, and it talks about those three guys. Leo Fender, Les Paul, and, and Paul Bigsby. It's by Ian Port, and I highly recommend it. It was a great read if you're if you're interested in kind of the the pioneering days of the electric solid body guitar. Shoot, who ain't? I know, That's right? Wonderful. I mean, if you're listening to this show, I'm, I'm, yeah. sh- I'm sure you are. Letters, we get letters, we get stacks and stacks of letters. Isn't it nice working with such a professional who, like, I have, I have the music you on cue. You got it set up. I just push buttons. You have buttons. Now you know what to do. And you just is, know. I I do know. Eric, I have an acoustic guitar truss rod question. Okay. When National Resophonic first started making replicas of the 1920s and 30s guitars, so these are modern guitars. Yep. Replicas. They installed a fixed steel rod into their necks instead of an adjustable truss rod, making the guitars look very close to the originals. Mm-hmm. I have a 1993 Style O. Is that an aught or an O? 
Oh, yeah. it's an O, we think. Uh, the action has always been great and no need for a neck reset after even 28 years. Good. They have since moved to adjustable truss rods for overall setup ease and serviceability, I guess. Through the Fretboard Journal podcast, I discovered Wandering Boy Guitars. Oh, yeah. Aren't they just beautiful? They're so cool. Yeah. Estella, Did, it's, so it's a Stella style. Have you blues, looked them up? Small body. I haven't seen them. Well, while you know. read it, I'm going to yeah. Google this yeah, for you. Give me some, some pictures on the radio. Um, I just love the look and appeal of these great antiqued guitars, and I'm seriously considering, considering putting my name on his waiting list. Being close to their historical role models, these guitars also don't have an adjustable truss rod as standard, but their builder, Jack Tarlington, is flexible and will install any kind of solution desired. Mm-hmm. So having had good experience with a fixed truss rod guitar already, I wouldn't mind going down that route again. Then again, if it's a custom guitar, I'd like to keep it in good playing condition for a long time, so a solid neck is probably a good idea. That may need a comment later. Uh, should I go the modern adjustable truss rod route on an otherwise vintage correct instrument? Should I just run with a traditional hardwood, say ebony, fixed truss, or even carbon fiber? But that kind of feels worst, he says, as it's the most high-tech material in a very vintage-looking instrument. Any advice you can offer based on your experience from working on vintage instruments? This is from Axel in the UK. Stalwart yes. fan, Axel. Thank you, Axel. Thanks, Axel. Here's a uh, here's a uh, little montage of some. Uh, oh some man, wandering boy guitars for Nat to look at while I. Yeah, and they've got tail pieces. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, they look the part. I mean, they they really literally yeah, look like style tuners, twenties like and thirties guitars. Oh, man, they're very cool. That's a twelve string. With, yeah, very cool. That's a nice size. Yeah, but the body size and shape. Yep. Um, you know if this. If it were an original, uh, if we were talking about an original 1920s or 30s guitar and you were having it rebuilt and asking this same question, would I, would I answer it differently? And I don't think I would, you know? Oh yeah. There are people who are going to disagree with me on this and that's where, uh, you know, you, you do what you want, right? Your mileage may vary. And plenty of people will disagree with me on this. But if it were my guitar and I were having it built for me, I would want an adjustable truss rod. So if it came in flood damage or in pieces, but you wouldn't install one as a matter of course, right? On a vintage one? Uh, yeah. It's something that I, I probably wouldn't want to do on a vintage one that was in perfect shape. Mm-hmm. But if the, like if the fingerboard needed to come off anyway, yep. and it needed frets and it needed a full restoration, I'd probably put, I'd probably think about putting, well, here's the deal. If that were the case, I would leave it up to the customer. Mm-hmm. And if they, yeah. if they wanted my opinion, I would certainly give it. But, um, look, an adjustable truss rod is, uh, is is a very very functional oh yeah and desirable thing to have in a guitar that that um that you want to you know you want it to be uh, as playable as possible right? oh yeah and it's not just for as he suggests avoiding neck resets 
No. It's pure playability. Yeah. So, you know, the um, the trick is, too, I know that they these look old, but they're not. Okay, so uh, a new guitar will need, in my opinion, you'll see more fluctuation in the first few years, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So with a guitar that's 100 years old, they really they really have a tendency to settle mm-hmm. in and if it if it did not have an adjustable truss rod in order to adjust any kind of bow or back bow out of the neck you would either have to heat press it which i do all the time or you'd have to uh plane the fingerboard or put a different fingerboard on it you know uh so you know just correcting a little tiny bow in the neck uh, comes at a huge cost, yeah. a big major repair. surgery. Yeah, too. really, it's not the same. Where maybe I shouldn't say that. If you but. have just a tiny little bow in the neck, and you take it, you, go, you creep, take an creep. Allen wrench and you give it a half a turn. Oh my goodness, yeah. what a luxury! No planing the neck, no what taking a, it off. What yeah. a luxury! And it's astonishing to me that it took until like 1985 for Martin guitars. Yeah to get this into their heads, like, you know, maybe we should make a guitar that you don't have to put in the oven to adjust the neck. Yeah, yeah just that little bit of relief. Maybe you want slightly different strings. Oh, yeah. I'm a big, a big fan, Axel. I'm a big fan of an adjustable truss rod. I gotta tell you. I gotta tell you that I, I would absolutely have an adjustable truss rod put in there. That's me. Especially, I mean, look, I know that this is a guitar that's going to look old. It's going to have the look, but it's not old. So mm-hmm. don't don't think of it as an old guitar. Maybe we could relic that carbon fiber truss rod or something. <laughs> it might help. Well, that brought out some really good truss rod info. Did it? That was great. Well, isn't that nice? Thanks, Axel. Okay. Thank you, Axel, and thanks, Nat, for being such a such a. Uh, it's going to be hard to finish that sentence. Cheerleader okay. for the show. <laughs> uh, I used to watch Johnny Carson. I know my role. Hey, Eric, I actually have a question this time, not just a wisecrack. All right. This is going to be really nice. I have a Jerry Jones Neptune Longhorn bass, basically a copy of a Dan Electro, but with a modern bridge, and it has the copper burst finish. After 17 years as my number one bass... A long time for a long horn bass to be your number one. I like this guy. Yeah. The copper paint on the body where I touch it most has turned green, as copper does. Mm-hmm. Any idea how to turn the copper paint back to copper color without doing damage to the paint? Hmm. I will send a link to a picture of it. I bet it looks awesome. With its friend, my Dan Electro 56 bass with a Jerry Jones bridge plate in place of the original Dan Electro one because Dan Electro just couldn't get that right. Right. There are no wise cracks. The 56 is happy and has no questions for you right now. The Longhorn is happy too, but curious about the green. This is John in North Bergen, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Where was... Oh, Thanks, Nep- John. Neptune is where... Dan Electro was, Neptune, New Jersey is where Dan, Dan Electro was yeah. based, right? Yes. Yeah. I see. Uh, so this is such a good looking bass, man. Oh, man. He sent me a picture of it. 
Yeah, the and copper when they do these copper bursts, it's real copper in yeah. the paint, so it's so it will it will tarnish and age. I gotta tell you, John, it looks so awesome. It looks spectacular. Maybe he's just bragging. I would I would <laughs> not try to change that. It's just the beauty of it's just the beauty of how it's aging, and I love it. Now, if you really, really, really want to try to get that oxidization out of there, maybe some light polishing compound. But I gotta tell you, man, it looks so good. Yeah. Just leave it. That's what people want their guitars to look like. Just leave it. In plus, many cases. yeah. Plus, it's not a relic. You've earned it. Yeah. How long did he say that this has been? Seventeen years. I mean, it's come on, base. man. I would just leave it. I'm gonna. T- I'm gonna see if I can steal this picture and post it as the, uh, as the, uh, the lead-in thing. Yeah, the the deal. The, the picture of the, for the show notes that nobody looks at. I yeah. don't think anybody looks at that. You know, when you listen to a podcast, you have it on your podcatcher or something, your right? Deal. Yeah, your thing. You never go to my website and read the show notes. No. Does anybody? Remember when we did one on amps? I'm just wasting my time by writing show notes, right? <laughs> it helps you clear your head, I think, and collect your thoughts. Well, isn't that uh, isn't that nice? Isn't <laughs> no, that nice? It's probably terrible. I don't know. Normally, we take the calls first, but I'm all out of sorts, and we took we took the emails first. But now, we, I think we have a call. So let's, let's hear it. Yeah, let's do that. And this is the part where I push the button that makes the uh, makes the call play. Oh, there it is. Oh, yeah. There's so many buttons. Hey, Eric. Um, just picked up one of your uh, five-way telly uh, pickup sets. So awesome. Love it. Um, the in-between sounds are great. And so you were talking on the last episode about your strap pickups a little bit, and I wonder if you could go into a little more detail about did you did you sort of hone in for your Stratocaster sound based on like a an era of pickups or maybe a particular year or maybe even there was a particular guitar that you were modeling or emulating your pickups after. And when you wind your Strat pickups, what kind of characteristics are you trying to impart on those? Um, and uh, yeah, and maybe you could uh, talk about if you have any other cool like five-way things that you do with the Strat pickups. Um, looking forward to it. Got a Strat. Um, looking to get some pickups for, and uh, your Kelly pickups are awesome. So thanks again. Well, thanks. Hey, that was great. Well, isn't this it? guy put some thought into that. I thought yeah. that was well, well questioned. Uh, so he bought a set of pickups for his Telly from me, mm-hmm. and he said, "I'm going to be using a super switch, so please put the a third wire on the neck pickups at the ground as a ground lift." Right. Oh. So when you wire up a super switch or a four-way switch to get a humbucker sound uh, on a Telecaster, um, you have to add a third wire. You have to desolder the cover from the black wire. Okay. And then run... The shield, yeah. Yeah, and then run a separate wire from the cover to the ground of the electronics because uh, when you run the pickups in series... You want to decouple the cover from the circuit. The potential, gr- yeah. the ground loop there. Yeah. yeah. So um, that's what he's talking about. He he asked for that specifically, so I did that. And I don't remember if I sent him a schematic or if he just, I don't know, if he found one on the 
online. I don't know. But yeah, I you I have a couple different five-way switch options that I use on the custom guitars that I make. One of them has you know, it it still has your three standard tele settings. Mm-hmm. Neck both in parallel and then bridge pickup. And uh the the um the famous five-way switch mod adds two different sounds. One is series or humbucking. Okay. And then the other added sound is an out of phase sound. Yep. Right. And I've modified mine so that you get two on my custom switching that I like to do. Uh, there's two different out of phase sounds. One that's truly out of phase in series. And then the other one is out of phase, but uh, with a capacitor in there to decouple Whoa. one pickup just slightly from the circuit right. and it brings more bass back in and yeah. it makes it sound a little bit more like a, it's like a simulated Strat sound, like those in-between settings yeah. on a Strat where it's all quacky. Ew. Yeah. So that's that's my favorite five-way switching thing. And I don't think that he's talking about that because I don't just give that schematic out. Yeah, he probably got the one like I like you did for mine. Probably, which I really like. It has a humbucker setting yeah, and, and an out of phase setting. Yeah, yeah, and they're awesome. I know you don't care for the humbucker as much anymore, but I cool. like it. I think it's good. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Uh, and he asks, "What did I? What do I model my Strat pickups yeah, after? Yeah, so how? What characteristics are you shooting for? Is there yeah. an era? Mm-hmm. Is and how do you accomplish that too? So." Uh, Telecaster pickups, uh, you know, f- made by Fender in the fifties were, uh, wound with, uh, enamel, uh, magnet wire. But that's hard to work with. Enamel coated magnet wire. Nah, it's not. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it is, but. For, for amateurs maybe, huh? Yeah. Uh, and then when they came out with the Strat, they used form var wire. Mm-hmm. So Formvar magnet wire, I think, has a slightly thicker coating, just slightly. And and uh, what that does as you add layer upon layer of coil yep. is it makes each turn of wire just slightly, I mean, we're talking about microns, just slightly farther away from each previous turn. And so you end up with less crosstalk in between the uh in the coil itself yeah. like eddies in yeah the, in there's the a dialectic dialectic trick in there that's uh kind of an insulator yeah and it turns out to give you a slightly brighter pickup that is cool yeah and strats have um just kind of this quacky strat sound and i think that the form of our wire is is part of that has at least something to do with it. That's the, interesting. The, you know, the yeah. 50s and 60s, early 60s strats. Now, when CBS bought the company, I think they just switched everything to enamel for a while. So later, strat pickups became enamel. Hmm. But in the late 50s and early 60s, strat pickups were form far. I'm almost certain of this. Um, I'm I, I always hesitate to try to just offhandedly give out I know. knowledge like this because then somebody's going to come out and say, "Actually, Eric, yeah, the actual uh, fact is." And in uh, one guitar, yeah. this one day, yeah. And if you want to dispute me on this, go ahead and email me. But form var, magnet wire, 
and I shoot for like a early sixties wind, you know, the, in the fifties, they were pretty underwound and very chimey. And then in the early sixties, they started winding them a little hotter around six K. And that's what I shoot for like a early sixties, six K about 6,000 ohms. Yeah. Form VAR. Alnico 5, that's what I shoot. That's what I do. That's what I shoot for on Strat pickups. But if you call me up and say, hey, I want, uh, you know, a 1954 style huh. Strat pickup, I can make that too, you know? With the like different in the wire, the different enamel. N- no, 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 with uh, like a lower wind. Oh, the yeah. lower resistance. Okay. Yeah. Oh, lower I resistance. See. What else did he ask? I think that was most of it. Uh, oh, he the said... The five-way switch, he, it, differences for Strat. Yeah. You know, one of these days I'm going to drop my knowledge on all of this. And I'm gonna, I'm putting together schematics. I really am working on it. And I'm going to put together... It'll either be something you can download or maybe even a real little an, booklet an that e-book? you can... Yeah, maybe even I a see. real physical book that you could buy. I'm going to try to get it done this year. But one of the schematics is my crazy strat wiring. I take a strat, I wire it like it's a telly with two pickups, the outer pickups hooked up to a crazy switch, a five-way super switch to get bridge, out of phase, uh, then neck and bridge, and then another out of phase, and then neck. Okay, so just like my five-way yeah, telly. Right. And then I take the middle pickup and wire it to the third pot. So you it, can... It's got its own pot. So you can oh. bring the third pickup in no matter where you are on the switch. Uh-huh. And so you've got a master volume, master tone, and then the third knob brings middle. brings in the middle pickup. And what happens is if you just... Like if you strum a chord and you're and you're on one of the out-of-phase settings, and you bring that third pickup in and out just a little bit, it is literally a phase shifter. Oh, yeah, so it's an it's a passive analog. It sounds just like a phase pedal. Manually controlled. Like It sounds like a phase 90, yeah. but it's a manually controlled phaser. Someone needs to tell Waylon. Dude. It's so awesome. It does suck. I have my strat wired like that, and I love it. Um, so that's my secret crazy strat wiring. Well, that, that, that's exactly what he's looking for. Yeah, and someday I will uh, I will put all those schematics. I probably have 20 different schematics that will be in this little e-booklet. You know. I can't wait for the e-manifesto. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be great. And since I'm not doing anything this year, uh, <laughs> then I'll work on that. This episode of the Fret Files podcast is brought to you by the lovely and delicious Apex Coffee. Oh, my God. Nat knows about it. Nat, what do you think about Apex Coffee? I like Coffee? Apex. Where's Apex? Is it in Waco? They're in Waco, Texas. I I, I gave I gave Nat a, uh, a bag of Apex Coffee for helping with the podcast. Yeah. And uh, he's been raving about it. Yeah. It's the good stuff, that oversteer. It is good stuff. I think it's lovely. Apex Coffee Roasters. They search the globe for the best coffee beans available. They really do. They roast them right there in-house in Waco, Texas to unlock the natural aromas and flavors that make each cup an individual experience. You can order Apex Coffee online. Fret Files listeners can use my promo code PINUP 
P-I-N-U-P. It works. At checkout to receive 10% off from ApexCoffeeRoasters.com. Hey, life happens. Coffee helps. <laughs> ApexCoffeeRoasters.com. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music. You can order a neck straightening iron. Some people call it a neck press or a neck heater. It is an invaluable tool in my shop. I use it all the time. I'd be lost without one of these. I, I love having a neck straightening iron, and Rick is making a really, really stout industrial. It, I, I, think it, I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've, I've used a lot. I've made my own. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one from playersgearmusic.com. They're $7.49. I know that seems like a lot. It's it's a tool. I tell you what, it's going to pay for itself a hundred times over. If you go to his website and make an offer for $6.99 and mention the Fret Files podcast, $6.99, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron a neck press, a neck heater, whatever you want to call it. Playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you, it's an invaluable tool, indispensable. I'd be lost without mine. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out, and don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. Well, we promised an interview, and here it is. Nat is here to interview me. Yeah, I can't wait. I've been working on this for a long time. I think it would be really beneficial. I think you could help. Well, in my defense, this was Nat's idea. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, because it will help people understand your motivations, your background, and so, and hence a lot of what your goals are sonically, hmm. if I can say so. Well, all right then. Well, we'll see. I may have overpromised. <laughs> yeah, haven't done it. Haven't done a question yet. But uh, the hard hitting journalism is going to commence now. We'll all right. Well, let's that. do it. Yeah. I hope we don't cry. Um, how about this? Can we start with the beginning? Yeah. How did you get your start in the business? In loofery. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was just I was the kind of kid who liked to take stuff apart mm -hmm. and. When I got my first guitar, well, my very first guitar was plastic, and yeah. you couldn't take it apart. But when I got my first electric guitar, I think this was in, like, 1984. Whoa. You know, I was You were I very old. Eight. Yeah. Yeah, I was eight years old. And, uh, I mean, I, I played it, you know, of course, but I was so fascinated with how it worked, and I just, I had to know, like, what... This, the string would vibrate over the pickup, and then the pickup would send a note, a signal, yes. through a cord, like passively. Up a wire. Like, there's no batteries in the guitar. I'm going, how does this work? How is this, how, how can it possibly create something out of nothing, you know? Mm -hmm. And when I figured out that it was with a magnet, I'm like, oh, okay. Because I, when I was a kid, I loved magnets. Oh, okay. And I would sit and play with magnets and a compass and see it yeah. make the compass spin. And, 
you know, I could imagine the invisible force around the magnet, yeah, you man. know, like, I mean, this was, I, I just loved physics and this yeah, kind of stuff. It's like right? the, the Copernicus of Osgood or something. And so when I, Osgood's the little farming community where my dad farms. Oh, everybody For those that. of you listening in, oh. in the UK. Uh, <laughs> so, um, when I got a guitar, it was it was the same thing. Like, oh, how does this work? I had to know. And so I would take stuff apart and put it back together and just try to figure out how it worked and, like, what happens if I turn the truss rod? Oh, it made the neck bend, you know? You would... Oh, that's dangerous. Yeah, eight-year-old kid. You'd have to take that. it to a guy. No, I, I didn't. That's awesome. Well, so and I didn't... So you had a mechanical understanding of this that you could do these things and it wasn't irreparable. I had a curiosity... Yeah. And and uh, thankfully I didn't destroy that guitar. Yeah. I still have that guitar, by the way. Uh but then I you know, as I got older, um I got uh I just was a tinkerer and I kinda got a reputation with the the you know, the eight or ten kids I knew in the neighborhood that yeah, also played guitar. And they would be like, Eric, can you make my guitar play like yours? How come mine doesn't play very well? And so it was kind of alchemy. Like, I didn't know what I was doing, but I could adjust things. And, like, I think that this, I think that makes it play better. And this was before you could just go on LuthTube. And, yeah, and not amazing. It was before the Internet. I mean, you could not get this kind of information just by clicking a button. No, not at all. And, right? the, and it's revolutionary, the, the yeah. difference. Uh, and so I found a few books. One was by a guy named Hideo Kamimoto, some Japanese fellow who wrote this book about guitars in the seventies or sixties, like 1970 or so, like how to, you know, how to adjust your guitar, guitar repair by Hideo Kamimoto, a classic, you know, and I found a, several books like that. And I think, um, Guitar Player Magazine would have little tips and tricks about okay. how to do this or how to set your action or intonation or electronics. You know, here's how to solder and how, how to replace a, a jack. And, you know, I, and I would buy those. I'd buy all those guitar magazines and I'd learn. And there was a, uh, by the time I got to working age, there was a guitar shop in my town mm -hmm. that I went and basically begged for a job. Ah, guitar shop. Single. Yeah, right. Well, no, there was two. Oh, I guess so, yes. Mike's music started, you know, about that time. But uh, So I went and started working for a place called Chesbro Music, and they basically, they had me, they started me out in the... Uh, shipping? Yeah, I did a lot of shipping, like boxing up sheet music yeah. and stuff. But they had a quality control department because they were the oh. distributor for Ibanez yep. for the whole West. Tama Guitars. Too. Yeah, yeah, Tama Guitars too. Uh, you know, but Ibanez would ship guitars here from Korea and Japan, and they'd get shipped to this distribution center in Idaho Falls, where I grew up. And so they had a, a little quality control center where guys would grab guitars off the shelf and fill the order and then go through the guitar and make sure that it was okay, make a few little adjustments. And I think I did that for a few years, and then they moved me into the repair department and I really started learning there, and then, you know, the rest is history. Moved to Seattle, and by that time, I think I had 10 years of experience working on guitars. Well, and you did a little bit in between. You worked on some stuff for me when you were that other shop. 
Oh yeah, and I, so you yeah. were getting probably you had probably. I wonder if you had as much repair business as anybody. Yeah, I don't know at that time. I don't know. That was yeah. yeah. And so I've been doing it since I don't know. I mean, professionally, I've been doing it since uh, the the '90s. Oh yeah, you're experienced. I guess so. What do you think about calling yourself a luthier, though? Oh, I know. Well, yeah, yeah. You listen to the show. Yeah. I, don't, I just don't like the word. To me, it's an antiquated word. It's like blacksmith or something. Yeah, I don't you know? really like the beginning or the start, and the end is weird. And <laughs> right, is it French? I, I luthier. Don't know. I like it when people say luthier. <laughs> yeah, luthier. Uh, no, it luthier implies that I work on lutes. Yeah, and I please don't bring me your lute. I don't want to work on it. What about like a bass fiddle or a mandolin? I'd I'd rather not. I'd really rather not. <laughs> I prefer not to. I work on guitars and luthier. I I get it. That's the word that we have to use. But it's an antiquated word. It really is, and it does not really apply to what it is that I do. No, it's not descriptive. To it's not at all descriptive. What's going on? Plus, most of the time, like like if somebody, you know, I go to the bank or go to the grocery store and you make small talk with people. Oh, what do you do? I'm a luthier. They, they don't even cops. know what to say. They'll be like, well, yeah. okay, well, I'm a Protestant. I mean, <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Exactly. You know, what do you want? Neat. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. But let me ask you this interesting um, kind of a nuts and bolts question, mm -hmm. which I think could be really helpful to a lot of people, these logistical questions, uh, such as how do you – establish your price list how do you say what the what something costs or what something huh. is worth how do you know what to charge yeah i mean a lot of it is just kind of standard in the industry in fact if you go to um uh i think it's guitarrepairbluebook.com hmm. uh let me look it up okay so there's there's a bit of an industry standard or maybe you knew Having been to other shops yeah. or whatever, oh, this is about what it costs for yeah. this or that. Um, so this is a guitarrepairshop.com or, or Guitar Repair Blue Book. And they just, they have a, you know, it's kind of an established thing. You don't have to take their word for it. If you look at any shop, standard rates, f hourly rates for the work that I do run between 60 and 100 bucks an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, it depends on your uh, geographical location yep. and your uh, um, your reputation and marketability to it, some extent, yeah. and yep. your experience. You know, mm -hmm. but there's shops in big cities like the shop I used to work at. I know they charge a hundred bucks an hour now. Man, can you imagine? So my my shop rate is eighty bucks an hour. Um, I don't have a retail location. I work out of my home. Right. And that's pretty middle of the road. Like I said, between 60 and 100 bucks an hour. And guess what? 80 bucks is right in the middle. So um, I just, I shot for a middle of the road deal. You know, Melissa's been telling me for years to raise my prices. Mm -hmm. She's, she thinks that I'm really a lot more of a specialist than I think I am and that I need to raise my prices. And maybe I will. I don't know. But 80 bucks an hour, and then uh, I have kind of a, ch a chart that I've I've always worked from kind of this chart that I have that says, you know, 
a neck reset is going to cost probably about this much. And swapping out a pickup in a Strat is is going to be this much. And for years I had this this kind of handwritten chart that I just referenced. And then uh, after a while I put it on my website. Like, you know, just here's my prices. Mm-hmm. Here's what it is. And uh, like swapping tuners would, would be, I mean, I don't even remember. It would be 40 bucks, you know. But uh, it's not always, uh, it doesn't always take the same amount of time. No. But I can't just have sit there with a stopwatch and say, okay, this took me 21 minutes. Uh, now let's take $80 and divide it by 21 minutes. Or so. And I just, you know, so it's kind of a generalized thing. Like I charge a half hour of labor to do this, which is $40. Or I charge three hours of labor to do that, 80 bucks an hour times three. So it's kind of a, by the hour, but also a little bit f- from the hip yeah, as well. There's, there's a little bit of p- piece rate because of your experience. Uh, you can do that. It may be harder for someone starting out. Let's talk about how you are a bit of a specialist, right? I, I mean, guess there's so. some things. Well, you don't do loots. So, no. <laughs> so we're narrowing down the scope. Um, but there are a lot of things that you don't have to do that other people starting out have to do. You can be choosy in a lot of your work. Um, How about you tell us about some of these great guitars you've worked on? Are there any um, maybe that have eluded you, you wish you could have worked on, or any special dream guitars that you would really especially enjoy working on? Well, I've worked on, yeah, dream guitars. I've worked on a lot of dream guitars. For Mm -hmm. me, you know, a lot of 50s Fenders, and Gibsons, and very valuable and rare guitars. I mean, just unbelievably mm-hmm. rare custom color fenders and, and uh, you, you know, late 50s Les Paul standards. I mean, guitars that are like $300,000. Yeah, as I good mean, as just, it gets. Um, yeah, I've worked on guitars for <laughs> Billy Gibbons and, and uh, uh, Jimmy Vaughn, you know, a lot of my heroes, man. Yeah. Uh, I've worked on KD Lang's uh, acoustics. Oh yeah, what you play? Of, it was was this, it a big old? No, it was this awesome little vintage Gibson. Oh and yeah, and she wanted side dots put in it. You know, oh. but I never met her. She had a she, she sent, had a handler. She, yeah, she sent a handler. You know. Oh, and, that's nice. Oh yeah, but then later, told the handler to call me and tell me what a nice job I did, and how, so I sweet dots. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I never even talked to her. But no, I've worked on famous people's guitars and just famous and rare guitars. Um, I've never worked and I've always wanted to, I've never worked on a, a real fifties Corina Gibson flying V. Oh, interesting. And that would be super cool. Have you ever seen them in the store at Emerald city? Uh, they had one, I think like two years after I left, they had one come through. But, but it was a the fifteen big deal. years that I worked there, they never had one. Wow! I mean, they're so rare. Yeah, there's there's only a handful of those. And they probably have handlers too. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know that is cool. Sorry for dropping names. Like, yeah. a, let me tell a quick little story. We can edit all this out later. One time, I uh, about name dropping because I don't think you are particularly influenced. I know you're not in most ways. Uh, one time I walked into Emerald City 
and you were a, a semi-famous guy had just walked out with the name of his band on his guitar case. And I could tell he was somewhat coolish, and I had vaguely heard of this band, I, and I really can't remember who it was. And um, I said, hey, was that kind of a famous guy? And you're like, eh, shrug. <laughs> you know? Well, who was it? Um, you know, I can't remember it all, and I have such a terrible memory, but it was just kind of a... It, it wasn't Jimi Hendrix? It was not Jimi Hendrix. I, I would have remembered. <laughs> um, but there was a stencil on this guy's case. And anyway, the point is, I, and I remember distinctly, I, I had heard of this band on the radio or something. Sorry, this, I hope this doesn't ruin the whole story. But um, I said, well, yeah, those... Dudes are kind of famous, and you said, eh, it's rock. <laughs> like, that's well, a pejorative for modern uh, indie. <laughs> I mean, I like rock and roll. I know. Um, well, the thing about it is that I used to work on a lot of guys' guitars, and they were in bands. I mean, this was in Seattle. Yeah, when so, they're touring. But I didn't know who the band was. I just knew that the guy was named John and yeah. had a, an Epiphone Casino or yeah, something, you wouldn't right? know. And I didn't even know. I mean, I was working on the Walkman uh, do you know who those guys are? I was working on their guitars for quite a while before I figured out who they were. I or Vaguely, um, almost. Uh, Death Cab for Cutie, I worked on their stuff, and I worked on uh, Pearl Jam's guitars. And, you know, but I don't, I mean, I'm not, I don't mean to, it's a delicate thing. I'm, right. It's not my genre, that's all. Yeah, you just don't particularly have knowledge, and that's, right. and, and that's not the point anyway. Right. It's, you know the guitars. Right. Um. Yeah. And you are a specialist in that regard. I right. think that's pretty... You, you worked yourself in a pretty good place there. That is fun. It was good. Okay. Uh, let's move into your influences musically, because mm -hmm. I think that really informs your, your guitar building, your guitar repair even, the sounds you want to get, and these aesthetic standards that you have. And maybe people don't know as much about that. That's interesting. That's an interesting take. See, I wouldn't think people would care. Yeah, but I, I think you have strong motivations that people don't really know about, and mm -hmm. it might even inform how you do your switching, right? Or how you want your yeah. pickups to sound. Well, I've always been, I've always been really interested in guys who have a sound, right? Mm -hmm. Distinctive, a distinctive sound. I mean, you can hear. One note from B.B. King, and you know it's him, mm -hmm. yeah. or or Albert King, or uh, John Lee Hooker had a distinctive sound, yeah. or you know Jimmy Vaughn to talk about a more modern still does, yeah. guy. So, um, and when he came in, I worked on Jimmy Vaughn's guitar and talked to him for a while, and I hand I worked on his Strat and handed it to him, and then he played it unplugged, uh -huh. like no amp, no chord, he just. Played a, Tried few, it out. played a few licks on it, and from that unplugged Strat came Jimmy Vaughn's tone. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's literally in his hands, man. Yeah. It's not a trick. It's not it's a not pedal. It's not just a cliche. It's yeah. not a... I'm, yeah, and people laugh about, oh, tone is in the hands, you know, ha, ha, ha. Well, unless you experience it, you really, you really don't understand what that really means. The way that you physically manipulate a string and hold yeah. your fingers and, the, I mean, 
when you are a master at it and you have an unmistakable yep. sound, that just flips my wig like nothing else. And does that tend to be a cleaner sound because you can hear that kind of, uh, may, maybe that level of artistry or the micro timing and the, the little nuances? Yeah. I mean, if you if you run through a bunch of distortion pedals, it, it just makes you sound like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I never have been interested in that. And I mean, when I, you know, when early on, when I, was the beginner, you know, sure. Everybody strings together yeah, nine yeah, pedals do. and they're, you're like, Oh, now I sound like uh Nirvana, yeah. you know, but it's easy to get a sound when it's an electronic manipulation. That's why people do it. Maybe huh? when it's a physical manipulation, that's a little harder to have your own sound. Yeah. That's you and the guitar. It yeah. doesn't get more honest. Right. Right. And, and it's almost this mythical thing because people, if you, if you don't experience it in person, you know, it, once you experience it, and like when Jimmy Vaughn played his unplugged mm-hmm. Strat, it just absolutely will blow your mind. Anyhow, it's it's blues is what it is. And, you know, blues music is has been my passion f- f- from the time I was a teenager. I mean, er, you know, early, early on when I was like eight years old, or I think, you know, before even I got a guitar, I think I was six when I saw the Buddy Holly story. And life that, changed. And, oh, yeah, my life changed. But I went from Buddy Holly into, um, you know, trying to find out what influenced him. And I got into blues, and, and I bought, when that Robert Johnson two-CD box set came out. I remember out it the, well. In yeah. the 90s, you know. I, like, I went down and about bought 91, that. yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, life forever changed. Blues guitar... And it's all about phrasing, mm-hmm. which I love. Just the, how how guitar players will come up with, you know, even just using three or four notes, the right. order that they play them in, and it's very conversational, and the phrasing. Yeah, call and response. It's and so, the, yeah. it, I mean, I just, I get goosebumps just talking and thinking about it. I love that stuff. Well, and they tend to play, especially the early guys. Now, when you say blues, I, I think people have no earthly idea what that means anymore. Oh, right? I know. Yeah, I've been trying to book gigs lately, and <laughs> I call these clubs and say, hey, we play we play blues, and it's, they immediately go, oh, no, not interested. <laughs> right. Because they either think some weird blues brothers thing, or they think yeah. that you're going to be some heavy-handed like ZZ Top band, yeah. which I not to disparage ZZ Top. I love ZZ Top, but they're not blues, man. And that's not what you mean by blues. You mean no? These, I mean Slim Harpo. These guys, and, yeah, they have incredible economy of phrase, right? And um, they have this, this simplicity that I know you really like. Yeah, and this, this maybe some sparseness. There's a lot yeah. in between the notes, and it's all about the groove. Yeah, early muddy waters, you know. Or um, Jimmy Reed. I mm-hmm. love Jimmy yeah. Reed. And it's not virtuoso music. Like, it's not, like, shredding guitars. And yeah. that's, I think, a lot of, I think a lot of people think that it's going to be, you know, like, face-melting right. guitar music. And, man, that's not what I'm into at all. Yeah, this is true. I can, I can confirm that. Well, tell me about, I know you like also instrumental type music maybe 60s sure. yeah um, maybe booker t or 
mm-hmm. meters, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I do. Um, and I, and that has that kind of, it tends to have that very clear and rhythmic guitar that I think you're looking for when you pick up, you know, one of the guitars that you've made. Yeah. I think that's right. Oh yeah. Steve Cropper is a huge influence on me and, and I got to meet him too. Super mm-hmm. nice guy. I got to open for him. Uh, and he, and his phrasing and his timing and his economy, his, you yeah. know, his note choice, it just adds to the music so much. So many guitar players think that music is this frame work. Yeah. This frame, like a picture frame around their guitar playing. Like the song is a frame around their guitar playing. And it's not that way at all. And, and you, if you think about the guitar that way, you are going to bore the (laughs) hell out of everyone you, that you play for. Because the guitar is just another instrument in the band. And if it's not adding to the musicality of the yeah. song... It's about the, the whole it's song. It's boring. I mean, I get it. You know, Van Halen or whatever. I mean, you know, there's virtuosity and I appreciate it. But how long can you listen to that before you feel like you're getting beat over the head with a guitar? <laughs> well, it, it is clear that you have to move the groove along advance the whole song and Steve Cropper would do that. Oh yeah. Or and especially maybe in instrumental bands, even when you're soloing, you're moving the song along. Yeah. It's not just your turn to do tricks. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, and Steve Cropper, you know, I think that he um his guitars were out of phase. His telecaster that he used in in the early mid 60s was out of phase too. Without a switch. And because well right? because in those days they wired tellies differently. So you you had uh, a three-way switch. You could use the bridge pickup. You could use the middle... Excuse me. You could use the bridge pickup. In the middle position, you could use the neck pickup. And all the way forward, you could use the neck pickup with a capacitor on it that made it sound like uh, you wrapped your amp in a blanket. Yeah, a tone it cut. Sounded like crap. Yeah. So guys would rewire them so that you could get bridge... Both pickups in between, and then neck oh. pickup. And Fender, a lot of those tellies, those pickups were out of phase, but no one would ever know because yeah. the, you couldn't use them together. It didn't matter before. So a lot of guys would modify their switch so they could use both pickups. And I, I think that that is, I think that happened on Steve Cropper's famous telly, uh, and his pickups just happened to be out of phase with each other. Huh. And it adds so much to those records, man. Yeah. You listen to like um uh, we should we should play a clip. Hold on. And okay, I got it. This is called Hip Hug Her. Oh yeah. You can't beat it. I Man. love his tone, his phrasing. His, he's so um, careful with the notes he plays, you know. Yeah. And uh, uh, he just, I, a lot of these records, they sound to me like his guitar's out of phase. Let's, I think so. So great. You need to play that. I know. So great. I love it. Well, that is, 
I I think that does kind of uh, guide a lot of your choices in uh, your guitar design, and and uh, I think that helps us understand some of your values and hmm, that stuff. That's, so that's cool. Good. Yeah. Well, you know, I never really think about it much because it's just what I do and who I am. Yeah, you, know? you can't. It's <laughs> it's hard to step outside of yourself and see it from a different perspective. But right. I think that will help people out. Well, how about I ask you? Why did you start a podcast of all things about guitar repair? Uh, it was, the, I knew a guy uh, named Michael Van Dieven who was starting up a podcast network, and he put out a call mm. on his podcast and said, "Hey, look, I need podcasts for my network, and here's how you know if you'll do a good one. You are a specialist or an expert." about a subject and you're going to do a podcast about that subject bells went off yeah and i thought because i had been looking you know podcasts had just kind of started up and i had been looking for podcasts about guitar repair because there was all these podcasts out there and i was searching for one and there wasn't one and i thought well that's 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 a bummer yeah that's too bad anyway anyway yeah (laughs) like i'm gonna start one so this guy was starting a podcast network and said, I need podcasts for my show or for my network. And if you can do a show where you talk about something that you have expertise in, then that's going to be a good show. And I thought, well, I might as well try. I might as well just give this a shot. I really didn't ever, it didn't really cross my mind that it was going to advance my business or career or anything, but it really has. Oh yeah, I think it's really helped, but uh, but I was inter- I've I've always listened to a lot of talk radio, yep. and not necessarily because of the subjects, but because the the conversational aspect of it and the storytelling and you know like Art Bell. I'm a big Art Bell fan. Well, and and I always loved. Yeah, and it's also while you were working and yeah. years ago, people used to listen to the radio, and you know what? It got annoying. When you saw when you heard the same song eight thousand yeah, times, yeah, I if mean, you're listening the, to it nine you know, hours a day. By the third time you hear the boys are back in town yeah, on, on the oldie station, you're ready to listen to something <laughs> else. So you're waiting for that you know noontime Paul Harvey thing to to bail you out, yeah, right? And a, and a new subject, and I know yeah. you always like that. Uh, so anything radio. from NPR to you know Art Bell, I listened to talk radio. I listened to a lot of talk radio, and I liked it, and thought, man, that's a fun. It's a fun thing, you know, car talk. Yep. You know, and that's kind of what I thought this show would be. I thought, you know, if I could do guitar talk. Oh, man. If you could do guitar talk. How cool talk, would that be? Like car talk. Oh. So that's why. Anyhow, thanks for interviewing me. That's an hour. So we're going to wrap it up. Hey, that was good. I think we learned quite a lot. Thanks a Well, thanks for co-hosting with me, and thanks to our listeners out there. We really appreciate your participation in the show. If you want to send in questions, go ahead and saunter over to my website, ericdaw.com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. We'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482. And uh, we'll use that as part of the show. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, everybody.